Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Mike Gregson. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Hey, Richard. Uh, Mike is also the host of a podcast, and um, will you introduce your podcast to our listeners and tell them where to find it? Yeah, thanks. So the podcast is called Come Towards Delight, and you can find it on any of the major podcast stations or channels like Apple Podcast or Google Podcast or even Spotify. And um, much like you, we're really trying to just interview people that have amazing stories of coming to light and, and overcoming some things in their lives and, and a story that'll lift and, and help another uh, that's in need. So I encourage our listeners to check out Mike's podcast. And after hearing Mike's story, I think you'll want to go to his podcast. And, and I want this podcast to be successful. And those of you that might feel impressed that you'd be a good guest for Mike's podcast after hearing his story, please reach out to Mike. We'll oh, put please. His, we'll put his contact information in the, in the podcast details so you can reach Mike. Uh, Mike is 40. He is married three kids, lives in Utah, active LDS, um, served a wonderful mission in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, his first companion was actually a friend from Salt Lake City our, and happens to be our common friend, Jake Watts, who connected us. Jake has been on the podcast and Mike is going to vulnerably talk about two really different, difficult chapters in his life. One occurred in his teenage years when he was a junior at Skyline High School on the outside, a lot was going right for him. Good athlete, um, a lot of gifts, but on the inside, things were really different. And it led him to really dark places and some behavior that wasn't consistent with the church. And then after a great mission, after a period of time, Mike went through a divorce and went into a, even a darker spot. Um, um, and he's going to talk about all of that, including jail time and being an alcoholic and, and, and being at the point of suicide and a deeply spiritual experience that he'll share with us. And, um, and where he is today, he's married. He's been married for about 10 years. He turns 40 in a short period of time. And, and the reason I love these kind of stories is for you and me, people that are in really dark spots that feel like they're beyond God's love or there's no hope for them or the shame they feel about them compared to their originally hope or hopes for them or their expectations are so different. And even from wonderful families where they don't feel they measure up within a family. And there's so much shame around that that just isolates us. So if you feel that way and feel like um, you're beyond the Savior's love or about beyond um, the love of your family, or even the love of yourself. Mike's podcast is going to help you, but Mike's podcast will help all of us that are trying to help others. Um, and uh, there'll be insights that come into your minds of things that you can do to help others. Mike's father, as Kim, has since passed away, but is just continues to be a hero for Mike and was key to um, his journey to stay alive and, and stay on a healthy road. Is that okay for an intro, Mike? That's perfect. This is a similar podcast to a podcast we did, episode 89, with Mike Berkland. Um, at the end of this podcast, if you want to look up that podcast, Mike shares some of his journey that's similar, and Mike is one of my heroes for sharing his story. But let's take, take us back to Skyline High School. 
um, when you're a junior. Tell us, a, let's start there, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before I, I take you back, I want to say one thing. Um, Richard, I, I am honored to be with you today. And as I, sh- I should call you Papa Osler, because now that we've <laughs> met, I feel like I, I'm, okay, I'm okay to say that. Either um, is great. <laughs> but I, I just have to say, um, as I've been listening to your podcast and, and to your, your listeners who have shared their stories, um, they've strengthened me. And the mission that you're on right now, um, I'm just humbled to be here with you because I, I feel like you're the kind of person that makes a difference and, and builds bridges and opens doors for people who are desperate to have them built for them. And they just want to feel loved. And, and by all means, they should feel loved. And, and you're on a mission to, to lift hands and, and, and lift heads and hearts, right? And so thank you for having me. And, and I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Um, I, so to jump right in, um, you know, grew up in a, in a typical LDS, strong LDS family. And, and as you mentioned, um, just kind of, as I I got into these teenage years, I started to think what's wrong with me. You know, I was doing fine, good, good grades. Everything's great. I had girlfriends, I had lots of friends. I played sports and I, and I was, you know, I always had really good relationships with my teammates and, and my coaches and, and whatever. And I respected authority, all those things growing up. But as I got into about my end of my sophomore uh, year and into my junior year in, in high school, um, I started to really just experience depression and I didn't really understand why. And I, I would sit in a classroom and it was very interesting because I'd sit in a classroom and I'd compare myself to everybody in that classroom. And for some reason, that kid over there could answer the question or that person over there could answer the question or they just seemed, when they would talk, they seemed like they were so smart. And what's wrong with me? Well, something's wrong with me. And my parents started to notice that there was something wrong with me as, as I got more depressed. I didn't want to talk as much. Of course, we, we know that about depression. You kind of go inside. And as I started to go through that phase and, and I didn't really want to talk to anybody and I, and I just started to get down, um, I was also sloughing class a lot. And, and I cut myself from the basketball team because of that. And I was, I was a really good basketball player and it was really sad and kind of shattered me in that moment. Um, but I was just feeling a lot of darkness. And so my parents started taking me to counselors. And I'll tell you, for me, um, I have an older brother and four younger sisters. And so I didn't really understand what the idea of, of counseling was. I thought in my mind um, that someone that went to counseling, there's something wrong with them. Right. And I, and I just didn't have any experience around that. And my family didn't to really help me understand that, Hey, don't be ashamed that you're going to counseling. It's, it's a healthy thing. It's actually really good. And so as I'd go and, and be asked questions um, that to me, didn't really, um, relate to me or help me understand where I was. I, I just was very confusing. And anyway, I, I kept going. And, and as I kept working with a counselor and a doctor, I learned that I had, I was diagnosed with ADHD, um, pretty severe case and, and also depression. Um, and, and, and so I was, I was given some medications, right? I was, I was given some tools that would help and what can I do to work through these things? And, and I need to talk and I need to be more open. But here I am, a 15-year-old kid, 16-year-old kid. And the last thing I want to do is tell everybody all my problems because then I'm looked at as a, as a failure and what's wrong with him, right? And um, so anyway, my, my mom 
with the medications would give them to me in the morning and I'd take them to school. And, and because I was so ashamed that I had to take them and that I had problems, I didn't want anybody else to know. And so I'd throw them in the trash can as soon as I got to school and I didn't really give them a chance. And, um, it, it got pretty dark for me. Um, it got to the point where I started to, to struggle with friends. Um, because I wasn't really being a friend. And, I, and so I started to gravitate more towards kids that were sloughing class as well. And I'd slough with them and I'd spend time with them on the weekends. And so I started to experiment with alcohol and I started to experiment with marijuana. And um, I felt like that was in some way making me happy. I don't know if happy is the right word looking back on it. I think just different. And I think that even feeling different back then to me gave me something, you know, something maybe I can work with and, and let's see. So I kind of stuck with that for a while. And, and, um, it got, it got dark for me. It got pretty hard. I, I, one, one term in school, Rachel, I'll never forget. Um, I, I missed about, oh, there's, there's just over 90 days in a term, I believe. And I missed almost 40 days in a term sloughing. And I, I didn't go anywhere when I was sloughing. I would stay at school and I'd be in the basketball gym playing basketball with all the athletes. That's where I would go. So it's not that I was out doing bad things, but I just, I was so hard on myself sitting in class feeling like a failure that I didn't want to be there anymore. And um, I got past my report card that term and it said 0.8. And I remember looking at that report card going, that's, that's who I am. That's me. I'm 0.8. And I took that report card out, out to my mom. She was there to pick me up. I couldn't drive yet. And I handed it to my mom, my sweet, my sweet mother. Um, she looked at it and, and started to cry and said, what can I do to help you? How can I help you? And, and I felt like that's the only question that I was ever asked at that point in my life. How can I help you? What can I do to help you? It's like where I was, was wrong. Everything about me was wrong. And I remember I just sat there while she was weeping. And, and when she was done, I, I turned to her and said, Mom, I'm fine. Can I go have a sleepover with my friends? And so the last place my mind was at was trying to figure out what was wrong with me. I, I kind of accepted that something was wrong with me, in fact, a lot, and that that was going to be my life. And so please just leave me alone. And um, anyway, that was that. Um, shortly thereafter, as things continued to get darker for me in my life. And I wasn't happy. Um, my dad came home from work one day and he, he noticed me sitting there and he already knew that I was depressed. My dad was really intuitive with that. He was very in line with me. And, and he, he noticed that I just looked, didn't look like I was in a good place. And he, he grabbed a copy of the book of Mormon. He came in, he laid it down on the table in front of me. And he said, with all, you know, with all tender, tender love of my father to it. You can imagine a father to a child. I think it's time for you to read this book. I think it will help you. I hated to read, hated it with a passion. All my family was readers. I mean, I had, I was born in a family with like these great piano players, which I quit as well. So there's another thing I quit. Um, they were great readers. They, they were reading these long fantasy novels, like Lord of the Rings when they were young, young kids. And, and here I am. And I'm like, I, I'm, I'm, I don't like to read. I'm good. Like I want to go play with my friends. And so I sat there and I looked at the book of Mormon and I really didn't think anything of it. 
And then all of a sudden, I, I, I felt a, a whisper in my heart that said, go, you need to go read the Book of Mormon. And I sat there and I, I fought it. And I thought, I don't want to, it's too time consuming. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me, Richard, what have I got to lose? I don't have anything to lose. And so I, I picked it up and, and I, was, I was about 17 at the time. And so for every LDS young man, you grow up, you have the parents that ask you and the grandparents that ask you, and, and are you going to go on a mission? Where are you going to go? They, you know, you, to get excited. And they tell you, it's the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. And so you've got all these, these things that, that are there as part of you. And, and we prepare so hard to get on missions. And so I, I didn't know at that point if I was going to go. And I, I definitely wasn't going to go if, if I didn't believe it was true. And so as I, I went down to my room, I got on my knees. And, and sincerely, for the first time in my life, with complete sincereness, I said a prayer. And I, I didn't know that God was there, but I didn't, I didn't not believe that he was there. I just didn't know. And so in all the sincerity that I could muster in my heart, I just said, Heavenly Father, if I read this book, will you please let me know if it's true or not? That's all I ask. And I made him a promise. I said, if you'll tell me if this book is true or not, if it is, I promise you I'll go on a mission. And I promise you I will give everything that I have on my mission because I failed at so many things up to this point in my life. But if you tell me to go, I trust you and I will give you everything. And from that day forward, I started reading the Book of Mormon, and, and it, it started slow. It was a chapter, a few verses some nights, but a chapter at a time. And things started to change for me. And at first, I didn't recognize it. Um, I, my friendship started to change. But more importantly, the way I interacted with the people I'd spent time with changed. I looked people in the eyes. I asked them questions. How are you? What are you doing? How, how can I help you? I wanted to be involved in a way that was uplifting to them. And I wasn't just worried about myself so much anymore. And I can definitely attribute that to reading the Book of Mormon. It brought life. It brought life to me. It brought light to me. And, and it did a lot for me. In hindsight, looking back, it changed my life. In fact, my parents will tell you, if they ever tell you the story, they'll say it's like the light switch came on. And all of a sudden, here was our happy kid again. And where had he gone for so long? So my life started to change. All of a sudden, instead of getting a point eight, I'm on the high honor roll. And, wow. I, and I, have to, I have to go to summer school and all this stuff. So I crammed about two years of high school into one year. And I worked so hard because uh, I had to. Because I'd you know, made choices that made sure I had to work hard. But I graduated. Everything was good. And, and, and I went on a mission. I got called to Indiana which is where my grandfather served. And, and so it, it already spoke to me. And I, I felt like, man, God called me where I needed to be. And, and this is going to be amazing. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to give everything that I've, I've, I, I can. And uh, so it was, a, it was a phenomenal experience. I got to Indiana and yeah, I hit the ground running. And um, I saw miracle after miracle. And I know that this gospel is, is the truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ the fullness has been restored and it's the truth. And I felt it. I knew it. I saw miracles happen, like I said, all the time and, and miracle happened to me. And when I came home, I was on fire. I mean, I was, 
nothing can stop me. I'm going to be a missionary the rest of my life and my life's going to be awesome and everything's going to be so great. And I, it was going to be perfect. But then as I sat on the, on the plane, my parents came to get me. As I sat on the plane next to my mom, getting ready to fly home, I was in tears. Why? Weeping like a baby. Because, and my mom asked me that same question. Why? Is everything okay? And I said, mom, I feel like I'm dying. I don't know what life is like and how to be successful in life. I've screwed up a lot of times. And yeah, I believe that I, I can overcome that. I believe that. But I have a hard time in school. And, and I, I just, I don't know what to do with myself. But I trusted that it was going to be okay. But it was, it was hard. It was hard to leave my mission. Um, I think if I could have stayed my whole life, I would, have, <laughs> I would have stayed out there. But anyway, I came home, got going. Obviously, the different, different things that pull you different directions in, in, in life, like work and school and dating. Oh, dating. Um, but I, I was working 30 hours a week. I dove into school. I was doing 20 hours a week in school. And I just overwhelmed myself trying to stay busy and, and, and dating and all those things in between. And, and I got a little burned out. And so all of a sudden, I started to struggle in school again. Not like I was in high school, but I started to really struggle. And I started to see my, the differences between me and some of the other students, especially in math and English, because I'd fallen so far behind when I was there and, and I hadn't really caught myself back up. Right. And so I started to feel those um, self-esteem questions about myself again. What's wrong with me? And instead of turning to prayer and really trusting in the Lord and asking for those miracles to happen, which I knew I'd seen, um, my prayers actually started to slow down. I wasn't saying them all the time. If I wasn't on my knees, I shouldn't be praying. How can I pray just laying in bed? That's such a lie. But I believed it back then because for some reason I felt like I had, you know, like I'm too tired to get on my knees. And so I, God's not going to, I'm not, he, he's not going to feel like I'm reverencing him like he should. And that's not the case. He just wants to hear from us. But the adversary is tricky, right? And, and I knew the scriptures, right? I, and so why did I have to study them every day? I, I knew them. When people would get up in church and quote a scripture, a lot of the times I'd be able to finish the scripture they were quoting. And so I know the scriptures, right? I know they're true. So it's okay if I, I put them off for a while while I do these other things. There's something about that though, because with, your, with my agency, when I do study those things, when I do pray, I'm opening the door. I'm telling God, I need you in my life. I need you and I need to connect with you. But when I stopped doing those things, it was as if I was saying, I'm going to figure this out on my own. And I didn't realize what I was doing with my own agency. And, and as, I was, as I started dating Richard, I, I started dating this one girl, and there were some red flags there, but I ignored them. I, um, and, and we got married. We we're still in the temple, and, and I was at a, an okay place then in my life. But shortly after the, the wedding, um, we came home. We started to argue, and, and the arguments would turn into fights. And um, the spirit of peace was not around us at all. And, um, she actually would hit me and, and, and she, she wasn't very big, so it didn't hurt, but it, it, my self-esteem just plummeted at that point. I didn't know what to do and I was crushed. And at that point, um, we ended up getting a divorce. And again, this happened really quick. And, and when I went through divorce, I was, I had all of that shame from my younger days come back into my life. And, and, 
instead of going to my heavenly father for help. Talk about why there's shame around divorce. You know, I, I just felt like my mission, maybe I, I felt like when I came home, like I have value. I, I, I did so good on my mission. I, I have value. I'm, I'm, I can do this. But going through that divorce, and I think, I think the culture of the church, uh, because of what we believe about the family and marriage and how important that is and how eternal it is. Well, I just took an eternal, um, eternal thing and I, it's wrecked. And so now I failed at another thing. And so not only did it give me shame about the divorce, but it brought back all the shames that I'd already committed or I've already had in my life. It brought them all back. And I moved down to Arizona shortly thereafter. And um, I, I did okay when I moved down there at first. I was, I was going to church. How old are you at this point? So at this point, I'm about 24 years old. Okay. And I'm going to church. I was going to a singles ward, but it's so hard when you go through a divorce and you're going to church. And even though people didn't know that about me because I was in a new state, I was down in Arizona. Um, it's, it's internal, right? You, you, you feel like every, you've got a, now you've got a, a scarlet letter on you. And so you, you stand out like a sore thumb and people aren't, when they find out about you, they're not going to want you. The adversary is so good at using those little things and just feeding our minds full of those things. And yet we think it's ourselves just thinking them through, right? Um, but I started working down there and I had another friend that was LDS as well that had just gone through a divorce and I stopped going to church and he wasn't going to church. And we decided, you know, let's go, let's go start partying. Let's go to clubs. You know, Scottsdale, Arizona is a, is a little mini LA and we can go up there and it'll be fun. It'll be exciting. And at least we can do that for a while. And um, I just thought there's old people clubs in Scottsdale. Nope. Excuse me, anybody in Scottsdale. <laughs> that was a stereotype. But no. When I go out to dinner in, in Scottsdale, it sends, I feel kind of young there, Mike, but I guess there's a, um, like any city, there's whatever you want to find, there's there. There is. And, and, you know, it's, it, that's funny that you say that because it's such a, it's a golf hub, right? It's like, if you're a golfer, that's the dream is to retire and have all those beautiful golf courses around you. But there's also a lot of young people and they're trying to figure out life and trying to get ahead and worried about, you know, things of the world, if you will. And there's some clubs there that they get pretty exciting at nights. And, and so as me and this friend started to go, that's what it was at first flashy lights. And it seemed exciting. It was new and um, we could go and get lost and half the time not remember what we did. And, and we didn't have to, we didn't have to feel bad about it. If we, if we put, you know, our religion, if you will, in quotation marks, if we put that in the closet for a while, I still believed, I absolutely believed, but I just wanted to put it in the closet for a while. And, and I wanted to feel okay because I had so much shame in my life. And, and this was the way I decided at this time in my life to go about it. Well, a few years later, I mean, and this, this lasted probably three, four years and it was almost a nightly thing for us. I, you know, I'd take all my money that I made and I'd go and I'd blow it in these clubs and I'd met, I'd meet people that I thought were friends, but no, I, I mean, not deep friendships at all. And everybody's there just to try and make it and, and figure things out on their own. And, um, so yeah, about three, four years later, all of a sudden I'm starting to realize like, I can't slow down with this thing. I, I can't. Drinking had become something to me that made me feel like I was 
more likable and smarter and funner to be around. Uh, people would laugh when they're around me. And, and when I'm not, when I was sober at those moments in my life, all I could think about was the shame and the failure that I was. Even when I was hanging out with friends that I knew liked me, I was so ashamed of who I was that it really just, I felt like I held myself back and I couldn't believe anything good. But if I had alcohol, um, then I could forget about that and just whatever. And, and so you kind of tend to believe that. And it, it led me to a point where I couldn't stop drinking. And I would drink in the mornings and I'd find out ways at work to drink in the afternoons. And um, it, it got pretty low to the point where I started to really have to be concerned about my job. This is, this is about three, four years after I moved to Arizona. And as things started to hit rock bottom and I, I got a DUI in Arizona um, and it wasn't really looking good for me, I got a phone call from my dad. And my dad told me, son, I have a lump in my brain. We don't know what it is. Don't panic. Don't stress. Everything's going to be okay. But I have a lump in my brain. And as soon as he told me that, I, I had a prompting, you need to go home. And I hadn't had a prompting for a while. So when I felt that, I knew I needed to go home. Um, and, and so I did. I, I, I took everything I had. I left and I went home. And if you can imagine. Home Salt Lake County. Yeah, yeah. Salt Lake so, County. Yep. Skyline yep. area still. Skyline area. So mom and dad lived in Holiday and great place. But you, you can imagine. I'm an alcoholic without even really realizing it at this point. Um, without caring. And I come home. And the only place I have to go right off the bat when I get home is back home to my mom and dad's and I'm staying with my mom and dad. Um, my dad was diagnosed with cancer shortly thereafter and he was my best friend and he had surgery to get the cancer removed from his brain and it paralyzed half of his body wow. and it changed his personality. So to me, it's almost as if my dad was already gone and it hit me really hard and, and I really struggled. I, I struggled so bad. I, I tried to be there for my dad, but it was so hard for me. And I was in such a dark place that, that I wasn't fully there for him. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you know about that a little bit more. But um, I came back to my mom's and, and I tried for a little bit, but there it was, the drinking, the smoking pot. I, I couldn't, physically, I couldn't stop myself. That was my way of just like, if I want any peace in my life, if I want to forget about all the shame that I have, I've, I've created in my life. This is all I've got right now that helps me feel that way. And so if anyone's bothered with me doing this, then so sorry for them. I'm still a good person. Right. And so I justify things and try and find ways to continue to do it. And it, and it really came crashing down on me as my family started to see like, Holy cow. He's, he's, in a dark place in his life. I mean, I, in my countenance and me coming into my mom's home, it would change the spirit in my mom's home. And so they recognized that fairly quickly. And, and as I mentioned, my dad passed away shortly thereafter. And, and there was a lot of a shame for me around my dad's dying because as I mentioned to you, I never denied the truth. I knew that the gospel of Jesus Christ was real. And my dad always showed up for me in my battles. And even when I was living in Arizona and, and partying, um, he knew and he would talk to me and he would, he would hear me without judgment and encourage me and, and remind me of God's love and try and remind me of my mission all the time. But he was there. He always showed up. And during the hardest part of his life, I wasn't there for him. 
I was there physically, but I, I wasn't there for him like he needed me to be. I couldn't even give him a blessing worthily. And that was, that was so shameful to me. And it took me to a place that was so dark. Um, anyway, he, he passed away. And, and about a month and a half after he passed away, I, I had to go spend time in jail uh, because of a trespassing thing at a club one night. And, and I missed some court dates. And so when the judge saw me, my, you know, my mom's sitting behind me in the courtroom and the judge looked at me and, and my countenance was not good. And I'm sure the judge looked at me and saw my mom, you know, crying behind me and said, this guy's got to change his life. He's wrecking his family's life. And so she said, you're going, you're going to jail for 30 days. And I, I went and it, it softened me a little bit, Richard. It, it, it was a, it was an experience that softened me. As you can imagine, it's very humbling. Um, but when I got out, I, I was an alcoholic. I mean, that's the first thing I went to. That's what, that's, that's what I knew um, to be that thing that gave me some kind of peace. It didn't give me peace, though. It just made me not, I, I couldn't remember. And that's why I went to it. Um, so anyway, long story short, I, I'm continuing down this path. And I have an experience where I meet my future wife when I am like at one of my lowest points. And we have a conversation that first night and I tell her about my mission and I'm talking to her about the gospel. She's a member of the church as well. And she was going through a lot of things then as well. But I said to her, I just want to get back to where I was. I know I made some promises to my dad the night before he passed away. I know he heard me and I, I want to get back there. And she, she sat there and listened and she said, I know you can do it. And I felt like, wow, I haven't heard that for a while. Maybe there's some value in me yet. And so anyway, I, 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 that was good. That was a really good thing for me to go through. But at that point in my life, I was waking up every morning and I was, I was wishing that God would get rid of me. Not, not just die, but I didn't want my spirit to exist anymore. I didn't, I didn't want to be around at all, period, even in the next life. And I'd wish that every morning, right when I'd wake up, that's the first thing my thoughts would go to. And that's why I went to alcohol, to just try and numb it out and get rid of that thought. Why, why did you not want to exist in the next life either? Because I felt like because of the light that I'd received and been given and the experiences that I had on my mission, I felt like because of that and then going against that, but knowing better, that in some kind of way, that was me denying the Holy Ghost as if I was going to never be given grace and, and forgiveness. I wasn't worth it. I couldn't at that point. And my life was so dark that I, I, I literally believed that. Okay. I felt like there was nothing good happening around me or for me. And, and I just felt like I wasn't worth that at all. Um, and so anyway, I, I started to, at that point, um, take alcohol to work pretty heavily. And it was very dark and I didn't, I didn't want to exist anymore. And, and one day at work, cause I'm sitting there working, I was thinking through how to end my life. I was done. I quit. I don't want to be here anymore. And I got off a phone call and I put my phone down, got my stuff. I went home in the middle of the day. So I just walked out of my job. I got home and the whole ride home, I was thinking, how do I end my life? I don't have a gun. 
So there's other ways I can do it. And I was thinking through all my options and, and I wasn't just allowing them to be there in my brain. I was literally like thinking those thoughts and, and carrying them through that I was, I was ready. So when I got home, I went down to my room to, to figure it out. And there's a picture of Christ that no matter where I was, I always kept it in my room. And this picture was a picture that my dad drew on his mission and it was done in dots. It's a really beautiful picture. And I, I immediately, when I walked in my room, I, I recognized the picture. And for some reason, I, I just felt like I grabbed that picture and I was so angry and mad that I grabbed that picture and I held it up and I, I yelled with all of my heart, with all of my energy. I yelled and screamed at God. Every four-letter word, everything you can think. And, and I was so angry at God because if you're omniscient, which I know he is, and you're perfect, then you screwed up in creating me. Why would you do that? Why would you do that to me? This, is, this has been awful. And I'm a failure. Look at all my siblings. They're all great piano players. They all, they're all phenomenal students. They've all straight A's. What were, my parents would go to parent-teacher conference and they hear all these wonderful things and they turn to me and go, Mike, your teachers, they don't know what to do with you, but they say you have a lot of potential. And, and, and I, all these things, all this shame. And I was so angry at God. There's a funny thing about anger. We, for some reason, we feel like God doesn't ever want us to be angry. And he doesn't want to hear us when we are angry. But I learned that day that that's absolutely false. That when we have anger, he wants, he, he wants us to bring it to him. Even if it's directed at him, he wants all of it. And I gave it to him. I was, I was so mad. When I finished yelling and screaming at him and call, call, blaming everything on him and how big of a failure he was in creating me, I was out of energy and I, I laid down on my bed and I just wept. I just cried and I was trying to figure out, okay, I'm done. So done. And after a few minutes, a still small voice, in my heart and in my mind, get on your knees and say a prayer. And my first thought after hearing that was, I heard you, but I don't know what to say to you right now. I'm broken, and I just yelled at you. I don't know what to say. And it came again. Get on your knees and say a prayer. And so I, I got on my knees on the floor, and I, I literally couldn't, I, I knew he was there. I knew. There was no doubt in me at all. That's what made this so hard, is why would he create me when I know all that is him, everything that is him is so good and pure. Why would he create me? And so I, I knelt there, and I tried to figure out what to say. And after a few minutes, the only thing I could say out of my mouth was, help me. Help me. And as soon as those words left my lips, 
I felt his love and his embrace just wrap me up. And I just felt so much love. I knew that to him, I mattered. I always had. I'd always been valuable. Even in my darkest hours, making my dumbest decisions, my worst choices, he loved me and he, he had value in me the whole way through. And so from that moment, I understood he loved me and he had forgiven me and that he wanted nothing but the best for me. And so I started to go back to church. Um, I set up an appointment with the bishop the first week I got back. I went into his office. I sat down with him and, you know, the typical questions and how are you? Welcome to the ward and all those things. And, and uh, I, the, whole to- the whole day before that, I've been preparing myself. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to let him know. I need to talk about these things. And then I get in there and sit in front of him. And when he asks me how I'm doing, I, I say, fine. And I just kind of go through the questions and I'm glad to be in the ward and I'll be here. You'll see me every now and then. And I, I couldn't do it. I was so ashamed of who I was. I, I couldn't do it. So I knew that God had forgiven me. But the thing that I couldn't do was forgive myself. I was still very ashamed of me. And I, and I, that, that I needed to work through that somehow. And as I tried, I was still, I was still drinking at this point, but all, my drinking had slowed down a lot. Um, as I was trying to work through these things and process these things, go to AA meetings, go to, you know, trying to get my life back in order. I was still very shameful and living in that shame. And I was praying for miracles. You know, I believe in Heavenly Father being a God of miracles and that when we have faith, we can ask him for those miracles. And I knew I felt him. I felt him so connected with me, but I I still was battling daily shame every day. Well, as I was going to church and, and my now wife was my girlfriend then, she was going with me. Um, we decided to go to a family evening meeting. My first one in years, I, you know, I was inactive for about four years and, and hadn't been to one of those meetings for a long time. And we went and, and we had a great time and, and we felt the spirit and it was good to be in a really good environment that just was uplifting. And so we decided, Hey, you know, we're in Provo, Utah. There's a Smith's on Freedom Boulevard and right across the street, there's a Hollywood video. If you remember what that is, right? Those things are a thing of the past now. So we went and we, we got a movie and we got stuff to make milkshakes. And I had just purchased this little scooter about two weeks prior to that or a week prior to that. And we're, we're maybe three blocks, four blocks away from where I live. So we didn't have helmets on and we thought it was very safe to be riding this thing. It was May the 4th. So it was like the first warm day of spring. And we hopped back on the scooter and we're driving home. And we had the ride away and everything just going straight. We're going about 40 miles an hour. And there was a young gal coming the opposite direction and she was going to make a left-hand turn into a residential area. So we were not at a light and we don't know what happened um, to this day, but we think she was distracted by something, looked up and saw a scooter and thought, I'm going to hit him or I've got to beat him because she was accelerating into the turn and she turned way too early and she nailed us head on. When she hit us, um, my girlfriend, my wife, broke her neck and back in seven places. She was scalped. She shattered her knee and shattered her foot. And she was alert the whole time on the scene. And when I, when I was hit, I broke my skull in three places. 
and and shattered my leg and my brain was bleeding. I had traumatic brain injuries. And the first person that was there on the scene, he was sitting at the intersection of the the neighborhood that she was turning into and, and he was on the phone. And this is a miracle, but he was on the phone with a friend that was a doctor and he had just returned from giving his friend a blessing. So he was in his white shirt and tie. And, um, of course, with the doctor, he said, oh, my gosh, I just saw this really bad accident. What do I do? He gets out of his car. He goes up there. And his friend says, is there anyone moving around? Is there anyone alert? And he came up to me first, and, and we're still good friends with him. And, and he explains it. He, said, he comes up to me first, and he says, I looked down at you, and I thought you were dead. But Alicia was moving quite a bit, and she was bleeding a lot. And so he ran over to Alicia, kind of calmed her down, got her to stop wiggling around, and gave her a blessing. And I know that blessing um, was a huge part of her recovery. Anyway, they took her off to, in, in the ambulance. They took her off, and, and then they realized that I was still alive. I was comatose. And so they put me in the ambulance, got me to the hospital, and I was in a coma for three days. Um, I'm not going to go into this in depth, Richard, but when I was in my coma, um, I was with my dad. It was a very um, tender moment for me. And I knew, listen, there was more light and love and peace. I can't even describe it. And the love that I felt from him, knowing that he was not ashamed of me for not being there for him in his moment, but just how much he loved me and that everything was going to be okay, made me feel so happy. In fact, when I woke up from my coma three days later, I had no idea who I was. My, I had a traumatic brain injury in my frontal lobe. That's your memory and a lot of your personality. The doctors were in the, in the room as I was waking up, and I looked up the doctors and I said, hi, I'm the Wolverine. I had no idea who I was. So apparently I, I said, if, I, if I'm going to go back, I get to choose who I want to be. So I picked the Wolverine. And um, I just, I, my brain wasn't in a good place. but but. My personality was much softer. My brother, my mom, my Alicia, they all say to me, there's, there's, there was a significant change in you when you came back. You were soft. The way that you talked to people was with so much tenderness and love. And that was very different than where you were before that accident. And I knew as, as I started recovering, as things started to improve in my brain, I knew that I'd been given a chance. In fact, one of the days I was laying in the hospital, I had a clear impression. I hadn't read my scriptures in a long time, but I had a clear impression come to me that the verse, you are spared because of the prayers of the righteous. And I knew from that and the faith of people praying for me that I'd been given another opportunity. And I was... I was grateful. I was humbled. I was grateful. And, and I wanted to, from that moment on, I wanted to make it right. I wanted to show God my gratitude. And, and as we were talking before we started, I, you know, I, I know, Richard, that I'm no more special than anybody else. But we're all very special. And there are people that die of accidents that are much less tragic. And so I don't, in any way, think I'm better than anybody because of that. In fact, I'm humbled by that, and I still don't know why. But I know for me, a miracle happened. 
And I know for me, my heart is so grateful for that miracle that the rest of my life, I want to spend trying to help somebody who is desperate to feel loved, who is desperate to feel value. Because when you're there and you're given mercy and grace and you're, you're given an opportunity, all you want to do is show God your gratitude by turning around and helping somebody else. So my, my journey, and I'm, I'm talking a lot. Um, people need to hear your voice again. So um, my, my journey doesn't end, of course. I, you know, I've, I've got to come back. I've got to regroup. I've got to rebuild. I go and stay. I'm 27 years old at this point. I gotta go I'm, I've got to go back and live with my mom. And wow, that's weird. And um, my poor mom. But um, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't go back to my job. And I had to go to, I was going to therapy um, four or five times a week, physical occupational, speech therapy, all of the things. I couldn't drive, brain injuries. And, and, but there's hope in me. Hope is alive in me. We're about five, six months earlier, I wanted to end my life because I didn't feel like there was any value and I couldn't do anything good. All of a sudden, I was looking at life like, grateful to be living it. I'm riding the bus around serving the homeless shelter, you know, at the homeless shelter, serving the people food and just trying to do everything I can to help people who need help and need to feel loved. And I've got this huge smile on my face. Cool. And I'm riding the bus in the tracks in Utah and I'm looking people in the eyes and, and I'm praying for them and I'm looking at them as God's spiritual child and I see nothing but value in them. And, and I'm also recognizing the battle. You know, that there's light and dark in this world and, and I need to do my part to make sure that I spread that light. And um, so I, I, the battle, like I said, the battle wasn't over. And I decided to go to LDS 12-step meetings, which was fairly new at that point. And I, I went to two of those meetings per day because I had time. Um, and that was, that's the atonement 101. You know, all the steps you need to do to really use your agency to access the atonement of Christ and allow him to come into your life and heal you and, and open doors for you. And as I went, as I participated, and I became a, I actually became a, um, a counselor in the program. Cool. Um, miracles happened. And, and I was able to go back to work, but I didn't know if I'd ever be able to do that again. Um, and my follow-up appointment a year later, the doctor sat across from me and cried. Her name is Dr. Fong. She literally cried and said to me, I don't know that you know how much this means to me to see you. People with your type of brain injury, 99 times out of 100, this, doesn't, this kind of recovery doesn't happen. And this is, a, this is a huge witness to me, of course, talking about Dr. Fong what I do makes a difference and um, so grateful. And, and I was able to get a job, you know, as I was serving in the homeless shelters, I met a group of people from Marriott International that are serving the homeless food. And I, I'm talking to them going, you guys are getting paid for this? Like, what is it? They say, hey, Marriott wants us to go out in the community and serve. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to serve. That's all I want to do. I don't care if it's hotels. I don't care what it is. I just want to serve. And so I applied for the job and, and this was, as a 28 year old man making $9 and 50 cent an hour was, that's not a dream come true for a 28 year old. Right. 
But the day I got that phone call that I got the job, I hung up the phone, I got down on my knees and I just cried. And I thanked my heavenly father with all my heart because I knew he was giving me a chance. Because of that, Marriott's where I work now. I've had a great career. It's provided so much for me and for my family. I'm passionate about service and, and it's opened so many doors in my life. So God took what I thought was a damned way. I didn't want to exist. I didn't didn't want to exist anymore. And as soon as I opened that door for him and I asked him for help, he, he brought miracles into my life. And I'm so grateful. He knows us perfectly. And, And I'll tell you, if you're listening to this and you're struggling with value or worth at all, I have a couple things that I want to say. First of all, there's no expectation. There's no expectation. We set up false expectations for ourselves. And when we don't measure up to those expectations, we live in so much shame. God doesn't want us to live in shame. Shame is a tool of the adversary. It is dark. We don't have to feel that. So get rid of the expectations. And the other thing is value. No matter what you've done, no matter how much light you've been given and how far you've fallen, no matter matter how dark you've taken your life, or if you were born in a situation where you think that you're looked down on by everybody else, Your value to God never changes. He loves you perfectly. That is why he sent his son. For you personally. Yes, for us collectively. But for you personally. That's why he sent his son. And Christ loves us perfectly one-on-one. And from my experiences, I know that. And I'm very grateful for that. You know, there's a bunch of people in tears wherever they are, Mike, right now, um, listening to this. And you brought me to tears before we went live and during the podcast. And it's just, you know, you this idea of worth and value not being conditional is so core to what I believe and what our gospel teaches. And it's just for you to then share that from a personal standpoint. Um, this is where I'd almost love to open it up to our listeners if this were a live podcast, because right now there would be hundreds of questions coming in. Ask Mike this, ask Mike that, and maybe that's why we're going to put your contact information in the podcast and ask people to connect with your podcast, because everything you're saying brings hope to others. Everything you're saying. Um, I want to go back and ask a few questions. Um, tell us, your dad's name is Kim. That's passed away. Tell us your mom's name. Carolyn, Carolyn Richards Gregson. And a lot of moms don't know what to do and they know their kids are struggling and they know how to pray and they know how to go to the temple. But a lot of this is outside of their control. Now, if you're four and five, it's in your in their control. <laughs> but if you're 15 or 16 and they're seeing point eight on the gray on the on the card, they don't 
quite know what to do. And so she asked you that really good question, what can I do to help? Is there anything, and this is your mom, as you've said, has done a great job. What could a parent do at that situation? What, what advice do you have for parents of teenagers where they just know that, wow, this is really complicated. My kid's in a bad spot. I don't know how to fix this. That's a really good question. And, and as I've gone and done firesides and, and opened up and shared my story to help, it's amazing how many parents will come up and ask that question after. There's a couple things. The first one has to deal with prayer and trust. When I got that point eight in high school, um, my mom, who has told me, she doesn't really have these, you know, sometimes when you feel the spirit, you just feel it. It's like, almost like smacks you upside the head and it's like, God's like, hey, you need to know this. So I'm going to tell you and you're going to realize I'm talking to you right now. She, as, as she told me about this experience, she, she told me oftentimes throughout her life that she'd never really had these huge spiritual experiences. She just always felt peace, but this time was different. And, and she was driving shortly after getting my report card and seeing how much I was struggling. She was driving around and she said she was in tears and she was praying, asking God, what do I need to do? How can I help him? And she said, clear as day. She got this answer from God. She heard his voice clear as day. Carolyn, he's my son. I love him. I am helping. You are doing a great job. She didn't say that to me, but that's what I'm saying. But, but she, he had basically said to my mom, he's my son. I'm helping him. He's going to be okay. So take some of that pressure off yourself and trust in me. Trust in me. And through prayer, she was able to access that trust and as she started to trust and rely on God and put it in his hands, it's amazing what happened. Anyway, that, that's, that's one thing I would suggest. The other thing, too, is if you have someone who is full-blown addict, I'm talking when I, was, when I was going and taking alcohol to work and in my darkest of darkest of places, and, and maybe, you know, maybe you've got a child that is stealing or whatever to feed an addiction or is, or is just that's all that's the focus in their life at that point. I think in those places, through prayer and through trusting, trust that if God gives you the answer to kick your child out of your home or um, take them to a certain counseling, trust that and go forward with that because everybody God knows them perfectly, and, and he's going to give that person the exact curriculum they need to get out of it. Now, does that mean there's not a long road ahead of you once that happens? No, that doesn't mean that. But it just means that those are the right steps that need to happen. One of the best things my mom ever did for me was kick me out of my home. And I literally lived in a condemned home for about two months without running water because I had nowhere to go. That's what I'd done to myself. And it was in those moments, as hard and as dark as they were, that I realized I, I'm a survivor. I'm not just going to quit. And sometimes people need to have those opportunities to be completely independent and realize that they can, they can move forward with life and be okay. And, and a lot of times, what do they call it? Enabling, where we, where we, when we're, still around our mom and our dad and things like that. We, we, we kind of go to them for our problems in life and almost in a way blame them. 
So we need to get them out of that, out of that element and give them the chance to really face themselves. And the thing, the beautiful thing about that is every, every single spirit that's ever come here to this world, it's a fallen world. God set it up that way. And he put them here because he knew they could do it. And so as parents, sometimes as hard as it is, we've got to sometimes give them to God and say, you know better than I. And, and maybe that's the step that needs to happen at certain times. Great answer. Talk to parents that might be listening that actually lost their child to suicide. So let's say you completed suicide and your mother now is looking back and say, I shouldn't have kicked him out of the home or I should have, I should have handled this differently. And I think most parents that lose a child to suicide just are racked with, <laughs> excuse me, just all the things they wish they could have thought differently. So just talk to parents that have lost a child to suicide. You know what, Richard, I, that's a phenomenal question. And I, I love your heart because you're, you're so good at thinking of everybody as you're, as you're talking. And I, and I wish I had all the answers, but I'll tell you this. Um, first and foremost, I've listened to some of your podcasts for people you've interviewed that have lost kids to suicide. And, and I, I want, if you're, if you are listening and you've lost anyone to suicide, I just want you to know how sorry I am and how loved your child is. I've lost two cousins to suicide and had some very special experiences that they're in a very good place and they're okay. And you're, and, and as parents, we're not perfect. We do the best we can. We love them. But at some point, we have to trust God as their father to take care of them and give them the things that they need. And every single one of us has a choice. And unfortunately, some of us are going to make choices that just hurt and hurt deeply. And, and I, you know, Richard, I, I don't know that I have the answer for that. But I'll tell you what. I know that if you pray, have faith, and you trust in God, and you do what in your heart feels right, that he's going to do everything on his end to knock on that door. And, and I'll quote a scripture in Revelations, and you know this one. But it says, it's Christ speaking. He says, I stand at the door and knock. And he who opens the door and lets me in, I will come in and I will sup with him. And, and I know through my experiences, as dark as it got and as close to suicide as it got, I was right there. He never stopped knocking. And if we answer that knock, he will help. And I think in the role of a parent, that same thing applies. If we, not, if, if we will open the door to his knocking and trust in him and allow him to help, he'll be there. But I, I know that they're in a good place. And I don't, I don't have those answers. It's a good answer. Um, this is pretty close to the same question, I think. Um, but it, it came in my mind. If you had completed suicide... Um, kind of a weird thing to think about, and obviously everybody's glad you didn't. <laughs> and you would want to talk to your mom and relieve her burden. Um, what would you say to her? 
And this is kind of you speaking for other people that have completed suicide, talking to their parents. I would, I, well, a few things. I'd say sorry. But I'd also tell my mom, I love you. Nothing you did personally caused what I feel internally. It's not your fault. And, and don't look at any of those instances where maybe we argued or maybe we got in a fight or even if, even if you got to the point where you, you kicked me out. I knew that was because of my behavior, not because of you. And I would just want my mom and dad to know, first of all, I would be there fighting for them and for my family every second of the day. And that was, that's my new mission. But I would want my mom and dad, my family to be at peace and just know that it's not their fault. Sometimes we get put in places by whether it's our own way of thinking or the influence of the adversary, sometimes we just get put in places that are so, and it can be mental health as well, right? But sometimes we get put in places that are so dark and hard to get out of, and we don't know how to talk about them. A lot of times, I mean, this is new for us, right? We've never been there before, and it's, it's unnatural. And it's so dark that you don't want to burden your mom and your dad and everybody with all these things of why I suck. Because all you're going to hear from your mom and dad are, but you're good. You're doing good things with your life. Look at the good things. that Because when you're in that dark spot, you don't want to hear that. And that's not their fault. That's because you're, you have so much shame. And there's, there's things mentally that are just blocking you from being in that place. And so I, I honestly would just want to say to any parent and my parent, how loved you are, how grateful. Don't worry about the times where you just did your best to be a parent and you thought you did the right thing. Because you know what? Those things are right. And we don't have the perfect answers for everything. It's a great answer. I've never had someone kind of speak for those that have completed suicide before on this podcast. And I think you've done a really good job of that. You've relieved some burdens to some people that are listening that maybe you've just answered a prayer for them. I'm thinking of the Sibley family. Down in Arizona, we did a podcast with them. They lost their son to suicide. He's a bishop and just a great family that just like your parents. And I think their son would say exactly what you just said to them. When I, I'm going to say one more thing on that note. When I was on my mission, I lost a cousin of mine to suicide. His name is Alan. And we weren't super close. You know, we we were friends. We knew each other really well. And when I was on my mission, my finest hour, giving everything that I had, I felt him right there with me. And I knew that he was helping me. And because of the miracles that I saw and what happened on my mission, I knew that he was, I knew that he was there with me, serving partly his mission as well. I remember many times walking the streets, knocking doors, and clearly he would pop in my mind. I knew he was right there with me. And I, kn- I know 
I know that there's so much good things in store for people that leave us early in this life. I love that segment. Um, I love what you taught about your advice to your parents and advice to parents of teenagers and young adults. And I think, you know, it's relieving your advice for parents because it's basically, they're my children first. And I call that sort of owning our doctrine and going to the 40,000 foot level of our doctrine and saying, okay, this is time. Do I really believe? And if I really believe in our doctrine that you, Mike, are a beloved child of heavenly parents that love you and created you and are their father, their parents first, and to set up this beautiful plan of mortality, they sort of set it up, they write the rules, they enforce the rules, they're the final judge, then we as parents can just leave it at their feet. And they didn't ask us to be perfect. They just asked us to do our best. And I think that doctrine and what you just taught, which is our doctrine, can leave a lot of peace to parents that maybe have young kids that don't know how things are going to go and recognize it could be complex, but parents that have kids in really tough spots. I, it's interesting you say that. I had a thought come to my mind when you were saying that. <clears throat> that um, in the scriptures, it talks about how the Spirit can bring all things to our remembrance. And I know when we get in the teenage years, in those younger years, it can be super hard. But when, when children are children and we're teaching them and we're helping to instill in them who they are, that they are children of their heavenly father and their spirits come from a place where, I mean, you have spiritual DNA of the, the creator of the universe. There's nothing more special than that. And you're his and he loves you. And Jesus came for you. In those dark moments, if we trust in our Heavenly Father and that His love for His children is perfect, which I know that it is, if we, if we put that trust in Him and we give that to Him, He will show up. And even in my darkest hours, I had moments where there was a memory that would come to me or a thought that would come to me to remind me why I was on this earth and, and who God was and why I was here. And those, those things come because God is reaching out and he never stops trying. I love what you said about anger. Um, when I was a YSA bishop, I met some pretty angry YSAs. And at first I, I was uncomfortable with that and thought, well, my job is to sort of get the anger out of them. But then I just moved a different space on that. I said, it's okay to be angry. I think agency really kicks in after a period of time, how angry you're going to be. And I think processing anger is part of getting over anger and, and giving permission for people to be angry in my, and I'm not clinically trained my experience. That's often the road to solve anger. And I love the way you taught in this podcast that Heavenly Father could handle, and he wanted to hear it, he and how healing that was to you and helpful for you. He wants, he wants our anger. He wants our hearts. He wants the desires of our Isn't hearts. Isn't that what's really anger is, is our hearts and how we're feeling? It's, it's absolutely. And we, we, we think it, it's a, when we have anger in our hearts, it's absolutely a, a we, think, we think it's a feeling that Satan gives us, which right. there's a difference between anger and contention contention, you're fighting with people. You're trying to 
put them down or get above them in a way. Anger, that's not necessarily so. I, I had an experience on the subject of anger um, just this last summer that was pretty eye-opening to me again. My daughter, my wife and I went to Disneyland. How selfish of us without the kids. We left them here. Grandparents were watching them. <laughs> and my daughter, the first day of school that we're um, gone, she breaks her arm at recess and PE. And this is her third break. And she's seven years old at the time. And I'm standing in the line, getting a phone call at Disneyland, hearing this. And I am angry. Why? Why does this keep happening? What's wrong? All those things, right? And I'm angry. and 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 I, 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 I took my anger to God. And I just said, look, I'm angry right now. I don't understand this. Please help me to understand this. I'm angry. I just need to know what, like, everything's going to be okay. And I just need to know, like, how to fill in these moments of anger. And I was walking away from that very ride. And as I'm walking to the next one with my wife, I have this impression. Do you not think I was angry when I lost my son? Do you not think that when the perfect son who came to do nothing but lift others and give his life in full service to others, that's all he did. Do you not think that I was angry? There were earthquakes. There were, the lights were off for three days, right? Sun, I mean, I mean, tempests, whirlwind, whirlwinds, earthquakes. It's okay to be angry. What's not okay is to take that anger and do something that's harmful to another person. We can let our feelings run their course, and then we can ask them to move on. But giving them to God is the healthiest way that I've ever the healthiest thing that I've ever done when I've had anger in my heart because he helps me understand. It's a really great segment. Um, I'm a, I had an Ensign article that we're taping this in September. It's coming out in October. Um, it talks, it's for the YSAs. It's in the YSA digital section and it's seven tips for overcoming pornography. And this podcast isn't about pornography, but I just want to read a couple principles that Mike is teaching us. Uh, these seven, I'll just read two. Um, number one is know that you're a child of heavenly parents who love you. If you're working to overcome pornography, you might feel like pulling away from heavenly father because you're not worthy of love or help until you solve it. This is exactly what Satan wants to do. He wants to isolate you from everyone who loves you with the idea that you can overcome this on your own and then you'll be worthy. Because of your design nature, you're always worthy to receive inspiration and personal revelation from Heavenly Father. Don't pull away from them or the people who love you. And the second one is titled Remove Shame. I've learned that removing shame is vital to overcoming pornography. Shame is a feeling you're broken, damaged, or a bad person. Believing these damaging ideas about yourself can actually keep you trapped in the addiction cycle. Feeling remorse for something you've done as part of the repentance process can help you change your behavior. But shame makes you feel like your entire character is bad and you're beyond the help of the Savior. Heavenly Father wants you to have full hope in the atonement and the blessings. Shame looks backward and keeps you in a whirlpool of lies. 
please stay off the shame road. So, I mean, Michael's teaching that, um, obviously, and I just believe it's key. And I, I don't really think Satan wins if we sin. I, I think that's obviously, I'm not inviting anybody to sin. <laughs> and um, he does win a little bit, but he really wins if he can put you on the shame road. And he can isolate you from the love of God. And so you've used these words pretty consistently in the podcast, worth and value. And one of my guests put it, my worth and I'll add value is set. Everything else is experience. That's Amy Pearson in her podcast. And it was just very helpful for me. Talk about, you could have done this podcast, Mike, and not talked about some of these words like divorce, jail. DUI, um, um, being an alcoholic. Why did you talk? Why did you include that as part of your story? Good question. I'm not ashamed anymore. Um, listen, I, in Alma, I believe it's chapter 40 or 42, verse four, four or five, and I apologize, I don't know it exactly, but in there it says, this life is a life for us to prepare to meet God. It is a time for us to repent. No, sorry. It's a time for all men to repent. So I love that scripture. First of all, it's a time for us to prepare to meet God. How do we prepare to meet God? Through experience. We we are here to go through good and bad. And guess what? If we're all supposed to repent, that means we're all supposed to make mistakes. That's the very purpose of Jesus Christ, is because we are supposed to make mistakes. I've learned that my mistakes have given me the ability and given me the gift to be more empathetic towards another to be able to go to places to find somebody in their struggle and help them by going to them and walking with them to come out of that darkness. We can't just reach our hand down in the hole and grab them and pull them up to where we are. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. Christ goes to the people where they are at. He sits with them. He hurts with them. He aches with them. He feels shame with them, not in them, but with them. And he walks out with you. He holds your hand and he walks out with you. He loves us deeply. I'm not ashamed anymore because I understand the plan. I know. Look, I've made mistakes. I've made some awful ones. I've done some really dumb things. And I've done things that I knew better before I made those choices. Hurtful things. Not just to myself, but to other people. But I've been able to go back and ask for forgiveness. I've been able to go back and mend relationships that are now stronger than they ever were before. And they were great relationships before. I'm not afraid. Because he's taught me I'm worth it. And I'm so valuable. And that I am never going to get myself perfect. I can't do it. In fact, when I try to do things on my own, I take it the complete opposite direction. It's destructive. 
I fully trust in him and know because of experience that he is the only way through his grace that I can be perfected in him. I utterly and absolutely need him. And I will walk this walk with him. And I will not be ashamed and afraid to own my mistakes and use them to lift somebody else. I'm not worried about people looking at me and going, oh, there's the guy that had all these problems and look at him. That that doesn't happen. As we get older and as we mature, when we are vulnerable, and that, that word, I've heard you mention it in a few of your podcasts, that word's very special to me. And I'm so grateful for people like Benet Brown that are really bringing light to that word. Agreed. Vulnerability is power. Vulnerability is accepting who you are. It's taking accountability for who you are. If you don't choose you and to be accountable for who you are and the choices you've made, how is God going to help you? You, you have to let him know that you need help by, by choosing what, who you are and what you've done. Vulnerability is powerful. And when we're vulnerable, I've never been vulnerable with people that I care about. And that's an important part. Be vulnerable with people you care about. And if you let them know some of the things you're struggling with or the bad choices you've made, I've never had anybody shun me. People run to you. People wrap their arms around you. As you come back to church, I've been four and a half years, I've been destructive and, and awful. I come back to church and, and, and Satan's beat me up in my mind going, everyone's looking at you. Everyone knows all your problems. Nobody knew my problems. They knew that I'd been through some things, part of life. But as soon as I opened up and started talking about some of the things I went through, they wrapped their arms around me. They loved me. And they wanted to, they wanted to do everything they could to just learn from what I'd been through so that they could understand where I was and then they could turn around and help somebody else who'd been there as well and know better, educate ourselves. And yeah, does that answer your question? It does. It's a great answer. Um, I think I know the answer to this question, but you've got young kids that don't know your story. Someday you're going to have a 15-year-old kid who's going <laughs> to listen to this podcast. And I think your answer is, I'm glad they'll listen to it because they'll just I'll be safe for them. They know they can open up to me. Um, it has a better chance of increasing the communication between parent and child and that I can walk on their road. You actually said something that was really powerful. When you talked about the Savior's role, he says, he walks out with you. You have a gift of words. I've never had anybody put it like that. He walks out with you. He's there with you in the shame. I think of the prodigal son. That's the closest I can think is when our Savior saw the prodigal. He didn't make him grovel. He didn't give him the cold shoulder. That parable was set up during the day. So the minute that father working the field, which represents our Savior, saw that son who had self-concluded that he was never going to be a son again. He was just going to live off the tusks, the, the leftovers from the servants. But that father ran to him, and I think the son said, but Father, why are you treating me this way? I've sinned against you, against heaven. It's the worst-case scenario. I've given up my inheritance, and I've been living a life of riotous living. It's the worst-case scenario. That our, and I just think it teaches exactly what you know firsthand. You don't have to teach that parable. 
you know it. And that leads into my favorite quote that your friend, Jake Watts, in episode 60. I still call him my trainer. He's my trainer. Your trainer (laughs) from basketball land in Indiana. I assume that was one of the draws to Indiana when you got your call there. The, The wounded healer, this is Jake's quote, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to the other's to think others can be led of the desert by someone who's never been there. And you are the wounded healer. Um, but our Savior is the ultimate wounded healer. And when you, t- you use that line, he walks out with you. It's exactly what this Henry Norwin is teaching in this quote. And the Savior in our, in our doctrine descended below all things. So even though there's not an example in the scriptures of every situation that you've walked, he knows your road. And he's there for you. And that visual imagery is really powerful. If you're a drawer, you may draw that someday. But I assume you're fine with your kids eventually knowing your whole story. It's a really good question. And, and your wife knowing your kids are going to yeah, hear this whole story. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's awesome. My, my wife is as transparent as they come. She believes in um, full truth, you know, and, and talking things through as a family and, and, and all kinds of things. So my daughter, who is eight, um, I took her to the first si- fireside that I spoke at when she was six in Arizona. And I'll tell you what, I, at first I wondered, my wife, I talked to my wife about it a lot. Do you think she's ready? You know, this is, some of this stuff is pretty heavy. Do you think she's ready? And Alicia said, yes, she's ready. And so I took her and she sat there on the front row and you could just see her. She, you obviously, she, she was so worried about me when I'm, when I was making my big mistakes, but she loved me so much and you could see she was just eating it up. And now the way that she talks about others and views others is no matter what, no matter how awful she's treated by somebody or that she treats another, or if somebody does something that's not very smart. God still loves that person and that soul. Here's this eight-year-old little girl walking around with like these images of, hey, that guy may be smoking a cigarette. That's fine. God loves that person as much as he loves me. I'm not better than him. She may see some things on the news that are awful. And now she has this understanding that God's love is powerful and it's there and, and she has access to it. There's, there's more to that now. I, I think we'll get more into the heavy conversations of, of like what really alcohol is and all those things as she gets a little bit older. But it's amazing how fast kids grow up these days, isn't it? I think it's great you brought her to the fireside. And to me, there's no shame then. And you'll, I think we as parents sort of need to put on this, and I'm 60 and you're 40, you're not 40, you're close. Um, we, it's, it's part of our toxic perfectionism culture that can be a problem is I need to be perfect as a parent. So I would never open up about anything about my past because it would maybe increase the, the likelihood my kid would make this. But I think the opposite is possible. Is it just, and I think my advice for every parent or even a leader that may open up in a way that's just vulnerable, I think you need to just pray and ask Heavenly Father how to do that and there's no universal answer, but I wouldn't rule it out to be an effective parent or leader to be open. Elder Holland was open about his mental health. Um, and 
just like you're teaching, Mike, everybody just loves Elder Holland even more. It didn't take his, his apostolic uh, mantle off of him to see him as somebody that struggled with mental illness. Yeah, we're, we need to end, even though we could go longer. You wanted, we haven't talked about LGBTQ. We do lots of podcasts where that doesn't even come up, but um, you wanted to share a few paragraphs of your thoughts with any that are LGBTQ. I do. Thank you so much for giving me this moment too. This is very important to me. Um, when Jake connected us about, oh, it's probably been what, three, four weeks now. And as I've been listening to your podcast, and obviously I understand your mission um, in a lot of different fa- facets, right? I, I think you're trying to really help the LGBTQ community and, and you're also trying to provide some help to some others, you know, whether a child's committed suicide and parents need to feel some, some love. Um, I just, again, just humbled to be able to be with you, Richard. I, I, I pray for you and for your efforts because I know that this stuff right here is what it's all about. This is, this is awesome. Um, I, I, I have been feeling prompted um, to write just a, a short letter. It's, not, it, it's about four paragraphs, so I wouldn't call it a letter, but I have something that I want to say to LGBTQ um, my brothers and sisters that are. And, and I apologize that I can't look each one of them in the eyes to say this because the Lord knows that that's where my desire is. I wish that I could. But I'm going to read it to the general population of the LGBTQ. And, and I just hope if, if you are in that group and you're listening to this podcast, uh, I, ho- I hope and pray with all my heart that you'll fill my spirit that you feel the spirit of, of my words, because I mean this very sincerely. To my LGBTQ brothers and sisters, over the past couple of weeks, I felt impressed that in connecting me to Papa Osler, Heavenly Father was giving me an opportunity to make recompense from my past transgressions towards lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer brothers and sisters. I want you all collectively and individually to know that I'm sincerely so sorry. I was the bully. I was the one that pointed the finger of disgust and shamed you. Without regard for your feelings or welfare, I laughed at you. Used mean, degrading words directed at you. And in full transparency, when I heard of your suicides, I didn't feel sad for you. Rather, I felt like it was your own fault for choosing the life that you had chosen. When you were successful, I didn't celebrate you or with you. Your creativity and the way that you see the world, as beautiful as it is, bothered me, and it made me feel uncomfortable. Over the years, my heart has done a complete 180. And it's not because of me. It's because of you. I have rubbed shoulders with many of you in school, at church, in professional environments, and we've also been neighbors. You've shown me and my family love. Thank you. You've shown me patience in my ignorance, and for that I'm so sorry. You hired me, managed me, and mentored me at work played sports with me, 
taken me to my first NFL game and celebrated me when I have reached milestone. You've shown me Christ-like love in ways that have changed my heart and my soul. When I thought I was one, when I thought I was the one doing what Christ wanted, but rather it was you. You were the ones. You were like Christ even in the way that he was acquainted with sorrows and grief. Yet you were kind to me and loved me. You are perfect. Exclamation point. You are beautiful. Exclamation point. You are exactly the way that God intended you to be. And I have more light, love, and hope in my life because of you. I pledge to each of you that from this day forward, I will be your advocate, your family, your friend. And I will be on your side as part of your team fighting in the war you have been fighting silently for years. Sorry it took me so long to stand up for you. I have put together a plan to contact the local LGBTQ community support groups to find out what I can do to be involved. In closing, I am truly so sorry. I love you. You are so important, and you are such an important part of God's perfect plan. Please forgive me. With love and admiration for everything about who you are, Mike Gregson. Thank you, Mike. On behalf of all of our listeners, I have tears in my eyes. Thank you. Just tell us the name of your podcast and how people can connect with you, and then we'll sign off. Sure. As I wipe the tears from my own eyes. Um, so my podcast is called Come Towards Delight. And, of course, the idea is for us to come to delight or light Sometimes we have to pass through some really dark times. Um, you can find it on any of the major podcast stations, so Apple, Google, Spotify. And, and as, as Richard mentioned earlier, please, if you or somebody you know has a wonderful story, I would love to, to invite you to come and sit down with me and, and let's have you tell your story because I, I just believe in the mission of, of loving and supporting each other so much. It's not easy. We need each other. And we'll put, is it okay if we put your email address in the podcast, this podcast description? Absolutely. So we'll look in the podcast description for Mike's email and you, then that's, you can contact him that way. So Mike Gregson, this has been Sacred Ground. Thank you for um, being on this episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. And thank you, our listeners, for listening to this episode. This is one I know you'll share with others and will be one of our highest listened episodes. Um, but thank you, our listeners, for listening. This is Richard Osler signing off from another episode. Mm-hmm.